Breen Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Two months ago, in the midst of going through old files back at our offices at WAMU, I stumbled across a CD with a handwritten label, Pilot Show, dated 9-18-2001. It was written in Maureen Fiedler's handwriting. Now, today Maureen lives in Kentucky at the mother house of the Sisters of Loretto. But two decades ago, in 2001, she was actually working at the Quixote Center. That's a multi-issue social justice group that was founded by Catholic priest Bill Callahan and Dolores Pomerleau. In the early 2000s, Maureen was a public advocate for women's equal rights in our country and in the Catholic Church. At heart, Maureen is an activist. In fact, in May and June of 1982, Maureen was one of the seven nuns who fasted for 37 days to urge the Illinois State House to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. Even though that measure failed, that fast made national news. Maureen told the Washington Post the day after the vote, We demonstrated that seven very ordinary women can do extraordinary things. We know that fast has increased a sense of unity and power among women around the country. Clearly, Maureen was invigorated, and she understood the power of media in politics. Now, during that time, Maureen was busy. She was organizing, attending rallies, lobbying lawmakers, and on a few occasions, she was also arrested, protesting war and human suffering. I say often she's the feistiest nun I know. Now, during this time, Maureen would often leave the D.C. area. She'd jump in her car and make trips to visit family in upstate New York. It was on these long and lonely drives that the radio kept her company. But what she was hearing really bothered her. Okay, that's an understatement. I would get angrier and angrier as I drove because all I could hear was quote-unquote Christian radio. Which was Pat Robertson and that kind of, like, very conservative evangelical radio. And you never heard another faith tradition or another point of view from a religious perspective. A little backstory. During the Reagan administration in 1987, the Fairness Doctrine was repealed, and that meant broadcasters no longer had to make sure programs offered different perspectives on controversial topics. When that was removed, it opened the door, particularly for religious programming and content that didn't have to follow journalistic standards. In other words, misinformation and even conspiracy theories could be presented unchecked. Listening to talk radio made Maureen angry, and then she got an idea. I kept thinking, somebody has got to do something about this, and finally it dawned on me, that was me. A radio program done differently. In the early days, through the Coyote Center, she launched Faith Matters, a radio call-in program, not quite Rush Limbaugh, but along the same idea. Talk about issues live and create an opportunity for people to call in, offering guests with a different perspective. But as she told me in 2018, it wasn't the right fit. Now, live across America from Washington, D.C., it's Faith Matters, the live Interactive, interfaith radio talk show. 
Here's your host, Maureen Fiedler. Making the case to commercial radio to offer an alternative to religious broadcasting was a hard sell. But then 9-11 happened. The real trigger for interfaith voices was 9-11. Somebody has to do something about this. Somebody has to spread some knowledge of different faith traditions so we don't demonize Muslims or at another time demonize Jews or Catholics or Hindus or whomever. And that was what impelled the start of interfaith voices. Maureen was invited by WAMU, the NPR affiliate in Washington, D.C., to guest host a live three-hour call-in program. Here's the intro to that show. Questions about religion and morality are intimately intertwined with the horrifying carnage we've experienced this past week. What, for example, was the role of religious fanaticism in creating this horror? Are war and retaliation the appropriate moral response? And what do these events bode for our religiously pluralistic society, and especially for American Muslims? In a moment, I'll discuss these questions. The phones rang off the hook for three hours. She was convinced there was a demand for a radio show, but this time she had a very clear audience in mind, public and community radio. And with that, Interfaith Voices was launched officially in 2002. During that pilot episode on September 18, 2001, exactly one week after the attacks, many questions came in asking about the beliefs held by Muslims in the United States and around the world, which led the guests that day to remind listeners that the tradition had over a billion followers. But the question persisted, who speaks for Muslims? That week, while Maureen was in Washington making plans to launch a new organization and radio program, six hours away in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a young mom was headed to business school, and she also felt a calling. We were getting ready to move from Cincinnati, where I had been working at Procter & Gamble, researching consumer products, And we were getting ready to move to Pittsburgh to start grad school. I was going to be going to business school. And I had a one-year-old. And 8 o'clock in the morning, as I was finishing breakfast and getting ready to get into the car, and I looked up and, and there was the news of this horrific attack. In that moment, everything changed. The most obvious change was our schedule. We couldn't, we decided not to move that day. Uh, We decided it it might be unsafe as a visibly Muslim woman. um, It was like for my own safety that we thought maybe to wait the next day, just because we just didn't know what was about to happen. We drove the next morning incredibly tense, not wanting to even stop for gas until we absolutely needed to. And I remember when we did stop, I sunk way down into the car so no one could see me. I was I was that nervous and that unsure of what was happening in our country. And it was a very strange time to be moving to a new city uh, so visibly Muslim, visibly Middle Eastern. The degree of uncertainty 
simply not knowing what to expect from a new place, from new people, from what felt like a new universe, a new country. When I went to the mosque that first Friday, we weren't sure what to expect. Were people going to target the mosque in in anger? There were even national warnings not to attend the first Friday congregational prayer after 9-11. We decided to go anyway. And what we found was quite the opposite. We, We found people there from other faiths and no faiths to show us solidarity and not scorn. I'm sure maybe more than the folks that showed up that day will ever realize. It really, it touched me and it changed how this horrible event was impacting my world. At the same time, the weeks and the months that followed were very difficult. The traumas that kept coming, the war in Afghanistan, the Patriot Act, some of us had, um, including myself, knocks on the door from the FBI, not to mention our Muslim brethren who were incredibly harassed and in some cases taken in for long interviews. People were detained and, and other things. It was a time of both acts of compassion and acts of cruelty at the same time. It wasn't one America. It was many Americas that we were experiencing at that time. I don't want to paint a picture that was all dark because it wasn't, but it would also be inaccurate and dishonest to say that things were easy or good. It was a very difficult time. And for me personally, I recognize now that I really did fall into really what what I would consider a period of depression. As a new mom, it's hard, especially with your first child, you're overwhelmed, you're sleep-deprived, you're anxious, you feel inadequate, you have no idea if you're doing anything right. And that was what this event came and punctured, a period of difficulty emotionally and, and psychologically because of being a new mom, moving to a new place, starting business school, all of these things are happening. And then this other geopolitical horrific tragedy crashes down on you and impacts your life so personally. And I did, I fell into this this heavy darkness where I literally didn't want to leave my home. I felt like the world around me was hostile to me. I felt like society around me had turned against me personally. I felt very alienated from people around me. I perceived the world as very hostile. And I remember... At that time, I was listening to some cassette tapes about the prophet's life, peace be upon him. And it was so interesting, the parallels that I was seeing in his life in in terms of the persecution that he experienced because of his beliefs and because of his followers' beliefs by the Meccan elite. His followers were tortured and starved for their faith. There was hostility all around them. It was real. It wasn't just in their, you know, in their minds the way I was starting to feel. I remember listening to one story, the way he responded to that antagonism was by redoubling his effort to connect compassionately. It wasn't by isolating himself or hardening his heart against humanity the way I was feeling like I was starting to. And I realized 
that this was my moral example. And if he was building bridges and not bunkers in the midst of so much hostility, in the middle, in the middle of pagan Mecca, then I can certainly do the same in suburban Pittsburgh. And that's in fact what I did. And it was inspired by this story and, and also by therapy. I went from not wanting to leave my house to leading the outreach program at my new mosque. I spoke to people, I connected, I educated instead of isolating myself. Who I wanted to be was a force for connection and not someone who was going to succumb and surrender to despair and isolation. Because if the reason I felt so much sadness and anger was because I cherished my faith that was being demonized, then to honor my faith, I should follow it. I should actually live its values rather than just be saddened by its misrepresentation. I wasn't going to live a normal, private, mom, corporate life anymore. I had to have a public role. And the way that I felt I must follow this faith and live its values was to reach out and to educate. And and so I made that decision that that's what I was going to do in this new world. I knew that this was a gift from God, and he was, he was telling me that this was my path. So I, I pursued business school, but I changed my intentions from the perspective of consumer products to something completely different, where I wanted to rebrand Islam. And not rebrand it as in spin it or sugarcoat it, but use the language of my society to educate and clarify and accurately represent my faith and my community. After finishing business school and doing outreach for three years, I joined Gallup as a consultant and led their research on Muslim societies around the world. It was such an incredible privilege to be able to work on the Gallup Muslim Studies project. It was at a time where there was virtually no information like that. Gallup was one of the first polling firms in the world to go into majority Muslim countries and do scientific representative opinion surveys of the population, giving ordinary people a voice to tell the world who they were, what they thought, what they believed, what they aspired to. It wasn't that they were a silent majority. They were a silenced majority. And to me, it was such a historical and critical contribution because we were hearing from both extremists and Islamophobes, and that is about it, that were taking up all the airspace. So to be able to work on a project that combined science with 
important questions to democratize the debate was an incredible privilege. When we come back, the spiritual and professional journey of a hijab-wearing Egyptian-American who stepped into the national debate on who speaks for Islam. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Green Khan, and you're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. In the early days of this program, many of the episodes spent a lot of time on Religion 101, bringing on guests that would offer context and history about religions that may not be as familiar, like Islam and the Sikh faith. The show also dived into the role of religion in shaping foreign policy, as well as our military campaigns, including the War on Terror. My predecessor, Maureen Fiedler, and early producer, Linda Rabin, were also very attuned to the way Muslim women were portrayed. They hosted several episodes on that subject. In fact, I was a guest on one program topic was Muslim feminists. I joined fellow journalist activist Mona El-Tahawi and Asra Nomani to talk with Maureen about our respective work. In those early days after 9-11, I was often called to talk about my faith publicly. Questions about what the Quran said or didn't say, and questions about what Muslims in America, and for that matter, around the world thought. I am not a theologian, nor am I a legal jurist in Islamic law, so I only spoke and speak today about my experiences and observations. And as for the question, what do a billion people think? Well, that can only be answered with rigorous data and polling. And fortunately, today we have it, in large part because of the foundational work of Dahlia Mugahid. 
She is the research director at the Institute for Policy Studies and has been a regular guest on this program, discussing polls and insights from research on faith communities. But this week, I ask her to share a different story, to reflect back on how the events of September 11th impacted her journey, both personal and professional. The book that I co-authored with Professor John Esposito came out in 2008. It's based on the largest study ever done of Muslim-majority societies in terms of survey research. The book is called Who Speaks for Islam? What a Billion Muslims Really Think. It's a book based entirely on empirical data, not opinions, not experts pontificating, but simply a description of what scientific survey research conducted by Gallup reveals about these societies and about their aspirations and their views. It's been a while, but those questions we asked are value-based questions. They're not things that change day to day. They're things like, do people aspire to democracy? How do they feel about their religious law? What are their views of women's rights. Those things change, but not dramatically year to year. And so a lot of that information is still relevant. And I think important now that we are again being thrown into these debates by the the pullout from Afghanistan about Islam and women and do Muslims understand democracy? Do Muslims, you know... (laughs) I feel like I've written the same op-ed like a hundred times over 20 years, right? Clarifying and and correcting the notion that Islam is inherently anti-women, etc. It really did challenge the conventional wisdom of the time, and now that conventional wisdom is making a comeback. Some of those things that it challenged was the notion that Muslims are inherently against democracy or they hate us for our freedom. And it was exactly the opposite of what we found when we actually asked ordinary people what they thought. People had democratic aspirations all around the world. Now, their vision of democracy may be different from ours or or what you might find in Western Europe, but it was based on good governance, people having a say in who governs them, how they're governed, transparency, equality, justice, all of these principles were things that people were incredibly supportive of. And when it came to specifically women and women's rights, I think this is one of the most misunderstood aspects of Muslim-majority societies and of, of Islam in general. And what we found is that both women and men in majorities supported women's rights whether that's equal access to education, working at any job for which a woman is qualified, even being head of state. But women were more supportive than the men in any given country of these same rights. So there was a gender gap in this level of support, although both genders supported them in majorities. And so it's not like Muslim societies are any different, really, from most societies It is important to note that women were very much 
for having these rights. The idea that Muslim women are socialized to accept second-class status, which is so patronizing, so condescending, so infuriating, when I hear people routinely say that, to me specifically, um, and just in general, it's not true. No, they're not socially um, socialized to, to believe anything like that. They are socialized and brought up and educated to want equal rights. At the same time, these same women didn't see that path to empowerment as requiring the leaving of their faith or the, the exclusion of Islam from their lives. Quite the opposite. They saw this liberation as being something Islam granted them and assured for them, and that they saw the path toward a more just society for women as one where Islam is properly applied. Muslims are complicated. We don't fit in quite easily into either a totally progressive box or or a religious conservative box the way it's defined in the United States. I hope there is enough room for folks to be their full self and still be in coalition and not require people to have to cut off parts of their bodies to fit into that box as a price of entry. What it means is seeing their trajectory and their safety and their success in ascending a racial hierarchy and becoming white. So people will say, oh, well, Muslims, you know, should follow in the footsteps of the Italians and the Poles and the Irish who were outcasts and then they became integrated. Well, what is the subtext of that? Well, they became white, right? They weren't Irish, they were white now. And there was this notion among non-black Muslims that that could happen to us, you know, Arabs and even South Asians. We, we could do that too. I don't think that their children believe that anymore. They don't see their path toward equality as through that trajectory. You were one of the first visible hijab-wearing women to enter onto the national stage and give voice to some of these points that you're making. I remember in 2016 when you went on Comedy Central, a show with Trevor Noah, and it was like this moment. You became, for many young women and men in this post-9-11 generation, kind of like the spitfire who's just going to get up there on stage and unapologetically talk about who you are. What was the experience of doing that program like for you? And how did it feel to find yourself in that place? How it felt was terrifying and like a huge responsibility, something that I didn't want to mess up. I prepared like crazy for that appearance. It it wasn't... Um, something I took lightly. I got coaching. I did a ton of homework. I felt like, you know, it's a test from God and it's a responsibility to, I hate to use the word represent, but in the end, that's what it is, right? And I had to therefore take that responsibility seriously and really invest in it and understand that it's not about me. 
It was amazing to meet Trevor. Uh, he's, he's such a nice human being. And before we went out and he was somewhat nervous, he said something really funny. So I'm going to um, be making jokes but I'm not trying to, you know, I just, I want you to understand. I like, that's just what I do. I make jokes. I don't want you to think that it's anything disrespectful or <laughs> I'm like, I, I think I know what you do, right? From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. I just want to ask you another question, though. I yes. know you're the guy asking me. When you talk about oppression, yes. when we talk about oppression, I think that the concept's really important and interesting because oppression means the taking away of someone's power, yes. right? And what hijab does is it basically privatizes women's sexuality. That's okay. essentially what it does. So what are we saying when we say that by taking away or privatizing a woman's sexuality, we're oppressing her? What does that mean? What is that saying about the source of a woman's power? We're saying that a woman is only strong if she's sexy in public? Yeah. Did I get it? Yes. Yes. I was worried about, you know, helping him to relax because I was like, I don't want this to be an awkward conversation. We need to understand the context of Afghanistan specifically. And what are people's experiences before the Taliban came? And then what are they expecting after? And I think if folks believe that what the Taliban will bring is security or stability, then a human being, regardless of who they are, will choose that over an insecure and unstable situation every single time. What Afghanistan has been enduring for now three decades is instability and violence. And the first victim of that kind of environment are women. During the Civil War, rape was so common that there was a word for it in Afghanistan, which was like laying down. I mean, it was just, it was this part of the war that nobody wants to talk about is the sexual violence. And so if what you're about to get is stability and safety, I think a lot of people would choose the stability and the safety. And that does not mean they don't aspire to equality. That means they want to make it to school alive and safe. I was just having an online conversation with human rights and women's rights advocate in Afghanistan. And according to her Instagram pictures, just for reference, she doesn't happen to cover her hair when she's traveling. That's not the way she normally dresses. And she was like, you all just don't get it. I'm, I'm going back to Afghanistan. I'm trying to advocate for women and protect women through my work. Lawlessness and the takeover of, of warlords is not an improvement over the takeover of the Taliban. It, they may be more friendly to Western interests, but they're not necessarily better for the Afghan people. So she was a real reality check for me in trying to understand the full picture. And it reminded me of a very important principle, which is in us advocating for Muslim women, wherever they may be, 
we have to take the role of follower, not leader, not parent, but partner and follower. Their voices need to be centered. And any feminism that is in the service of war is patriarchy with a mask on. So when I hear so-called feminist arguments being made to go to war, to have our advanced military invade a country, and I know that the first victims are women, that makes me very skeptical of, of the real intentions. And when you look at history, saving Muslim women has been the justification for wars, starting with the Crusades, believe it or not. I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. I grew up in a practicing Muslim home. My parents were both PhD students in the School of Engineering at the University of Wisconsin. And they raised me and my sisters to respect our faith, to lead an ethical life. And so faith was about an ethical framework, and it was also about practice. What I had to discover on my own and I'm still on that journey, is the spiritual side of that faith tradition. What it means to really have a relationship with God and to cultivate that personal relationship in how we navigate our lives. It's a journey and it's gotten me through some really rough times. My name's Dahlia Mugahid, and I'm the Director of Research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Coming up, a scholar of American studies outlines how the events of 9-11 led to seismic shifts and changes in our culture and our politics. Stay with us. Green Khan, and you're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. This week, we're taking a special look at how the events of 9-11 shaped communities. Over the next few months, we'll hear reflections from leaders and scholars from different sectors and parts of the country for their points of view. Earlier, we heard Dahlia Magahid, how her plans to become a consumer market researcher in the private sector shifted into a very public role one she felt called to serve. We now widen the lens with Dr. Sylvia chan Malik. She's a distinguished American Studies scholar currently teaching at Rutgers University, who, like Dahlia, deepened the public's understanding of Muslims and Islam in the United States. Her research focuses on the lives of U.S. Muslim women and the rise of anti-Muslim racism in the 20th and 21st century. In 2018, NYU Press published her first book, Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color in American Islam. Dr. Chan Malik begins by reflecting on a positive change since 9-11. I've been thinking a lot 
about the conflicting legacies of 9-11. Because on the one hand, it's very easy, especially as a scholar, to really see the negatives um, all of the time. But one thing that I've noticed over and over is that while a lot of the stereotypes, the tropes, the narratives that we see about Islam and Muslims um, have not shifted that much, what has shifted is the incredible engagement of U.S. Muslim communities within the public sphere, within activism and organizing, within cultural and artistic expressions in a way that was unprecedented prior to 9-11. And so you've really seen, and I've really observed, a real sense of engagement and investment in taking a hold of a narrative from films to music to culture to politics to activism to organizing to scholarship. Um, And I think that's a really, really positive development. When I'm thinking about the larger question of what it means to be an American Muslim, a U.S. Muslim, I start with this, the fact that Muslims have been present in this country for centuries. Muslims arrived in large numbers with enslaved Africans 400 years ago. They created communities and presence amongst enslaved peoples. There was a resurgence of Islam in African-American communities in the early 20th century. Uh, We're very familiar with figures such as Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad and Muhammad Ali. And then subsequently hip hop artists, you know, who kind of are connected to those types of figures. Prior to 9-11, what happened was that you had this narrative of African-American Muslims. You have new communities that are arriving, immigrant communities from the Middle East, from South Asia, from all different parts of the world. And you have communities that are very separate in lots of ways. And none of those communities prior to 9-11 really interacted with each other. There was an African-American mosque, a predominantly South Asian one, an Arab-American one. And what 9-11 did was it raised this question of who is a Muslim in the United States? Who are you? What is this community? And it really forced Muslims themselves who had been in these, you know, different communities, you know, linguistic, cultural, racial, ethnic backgrounds to really try to talk to each other for maybe the first time. 9-11 was a catalyst for that, for Muslims from all different backgrounds coming together to figure out what does it mean for all of us to organize and create an identity that reflects our own histories and diversity and vibrancy across all these different spaces. And in the last 20 years, that has really been what we've been seeing. And it's a very new conversation in that way. And we're really still seeing it play out on the ground every single day. One of the anecdotes that I like to use when I teach or when I speak is that if you were the child of immigrants, perhaps a South Asian in Edison, New Jersey, which is close to where I live, where there's a large population of Muslims on September 10th, <laughs> 2001, you know, your life changed really drastically from September 10th to September 11th. And what shifted was not sort of the internal contours of your life. You know, you still went to the same school, your family, everything, you know, that stayed the same. That was a constant. What was different was how everyone was looking at you. 
and how you were perceived and how all of a sudden what shifted in that moment was how you were understood after 9-11 with the surveillance and the very clear anti-Muslim rhetoric that was playing out and the hate crimes on the rise. There was a way in which consciousness and awareness of these types of racialized discourses really, really became far more pronounced amongst Muslims themselves who had perhaps not thought about these things. 9-11 forced race to be very forcefully at the center of the conversation and how we are going to craft a Muslim identity moving forward. And how that's played out is that it's caused some quite painful conversations amongst Muslims themselves. You know, a lot of the really interesting advocacy work that I'm involved in or that I watch very closely is about thinking about anti-Blackness. In Muslim communities, you have groups like Muslim ARC, Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative, Muslim Wellness Foundation, different groups like that, really thinking about how are we as Muslims going to talk about these issues amongst ourselves when at the same time we are collectively a racialized group. And so it leads to these types of very complicated and nuanced and difficult conversations. These are the types of dynamics that I see playing out. And moving forward, I think these conversations are going to happen for some time to come, both in how Muslims are looked at as a racialized group and how race and issues of racism occur within Muslim communities. The stereotypes around Islam and Muslims and the way we've come to imagine them in this country is that Muslims don't operate in the same logical universe that other religious faiths do, like Christians. We understand that there's a plurality of opinions and understandings and interpretations of Christian doctrine within the Christian community. We understand that there's a range of the ways that Judaism is practiced amongst Jewish communities. For some reason, when it comes to Islam and Muslims, There is this overlying idea that 1.8 billion Muslims worldwide somehow are so beholden to their holy texts and ideology that they all think in lockstep. This is the result, as I said, of the constrictions that these long-standing stereotypes around Islam and Muslims and connected mostly to the Middle East. And I always want to point out the vast majority of Muslims in the world are not in the Middle East or what is called the Arab world. The vast majority of them live outside of that region. We really have to kind of remember that and put that into the analysis when we say things like, or when we hear things like American Taliban. As someone who studies Muslims in the United States, I am often surprised every time I am reminded of the fact that Muslims make up about 1.3% of the American population. I'm surprised by this fact because the amount of space that Islam and Muslims take up in the media landscape and the threat that Muslims within the United States somehow seem to pose to the American public is so disproportionate 
with the actual number of Muslims that actually lives in this country. So while on the one hand, most Americans might say, I don't really know a Muslim, but they are extremely familiar with all the stereotypes all the negative connotations of being Muslim, all the you know images of terrorists and women in burqas, everyone is familiar with that. I think we have to be extremely critical of that media landscape. Women's bodies have always been sites of political struggle whether it's in the United States, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in Saudi Arabia, you see the ways in which anxieties, desires, you know, debates, divisions become projected onto bodies of women. And the U.S. is no different. You can say the same with histories of African-American women or indigenous native women or immigrant women. But in the case of Muslim women, First of all, the percentage of Muslim women that cover their hair, so quote unquote, appear as visibly Muslim, it's about give or take about 50%. There are practicing Muslim women who do not cover their hair in public, but who cover their hair to pray. There are all different kind of variations of how you cover. Some women might cover their hair in a way in which their neck is not covered. So they might not seem as visibly Muslim. However, Across all Muslim women, whether they're covered or not covered, I haven't yet to encounter in my research and my teaching and my talks around the country, one Muslim woman in the United States since 9-11 who has not felt that she is the target of some sort of potential violence as she's walking through the world. me is it's really horrifying. <laughs> you know, that's a really disturbing fact. Women who are expressing their faith are also carrying around a fear. Again, the difference between race and religion is that for Muslim women, Islam is also supposed to be a space of solace, a space of safety, a space of comfort. I absolutely see a new generation of young Muslim women in so many of the social justice organizations. It's women who are at the helm of these organizations. They are the ones who are out there doing the work, raising money, talking to people. I mean, two of the most well-known Muslims in public life right now are Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, the two representatives. And so you see the ways in which women, Muslim women, have become the face of engagement and activism in a lot of ways. And this is definitely holding true for the younger generation, this generation that has grown up and, and knows nothing else except this America in which the war on terror is a constant reality. And I, I would like to add, too, that young women, young Muslim women are not just dealing with the everyday uh, exhaustion of racialization at school, in their jobs, 
of when they turn on the TV, et cetera. But there's also been a lot of coming to terms with issues of sexism and misogyny within Muslim communities. There have been organizations that have come up to address issues of domestic violence in Muslim communities, of spiritual abuse, of women's access to prayer in mosques. And young women are connecting all of these different spaces, access to their religious practice, to social justice, to issues you know, of equity and education and beyond, up to Black Lives Matter, to immigration reform. And you see all of this coming together in really exciting ways. James Baldwin says, I have to be hopeful because I'm alive. And I also have three daughters. So I am so cautious and concerned and fearful at times about the future. But I also see incredible possibilities that did not exist. So what I see looking forward is that there's so much to deal with. But I always come back to this statement that a student of mine said in a class on Islam in America. We were reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, and students are always just blown away by how different Malcolm X is from what they've heard. And so this young man was reading this book, and he said, Malcolm X was thinking about so many incredible things. He was thinking about organizing on an international level and, you know, kind of the UN and dealing with anti-Blackness as a transnational issue, a human rights issue. He said, if we could just not have to deal with rejecting and countering stereotypes all the time and just get to the work of changing the world, we could really make a difference. And what I find exciting is that there's less concern with just trying to reject stereotypes and say, oh, no, Muslims aren't this. We're going to Paul. We're so sorry. We condemn this act of terrorism. There was so much of that after 9-11. But now you see young people saying, you know what, we're going to start an anti-racist coalition between Muslims and this group and this group. And we're just going to do that. We're not going to spend time, you know, talking about what Muslims are and Muslims are. We're going to do the work. Dr. Sylvia Chan-Mullock is a scholar of American studies, critical race and ethnic studies, women and gender studies, and religious studies. She's a professor at Rutgers University, where her research focuses on the history of Islam in the United States. And she's the author of Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color and American Islam, published by NYU Press in 2018. That's all for this week's episode. Our producer this week is Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. Interfaith Voices programming is made possible by the generous contributions of our donors. To learn more about us, please visit interfaithradio.org. Sign up for our newsletter, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to the podcast. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, I hope you are well, I hope you are safe, and I hope to see you next week.